You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning. Our reading this morning is Esther 2, verses 1 to 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're in chapter two of uh, Esther, you know, second week of the book of Esther. And today we meet the woman who gives the book its name, the main character. And as you're reading along, because she's the main character, you start, you find yourself barracking for her. You're excited that she's beautiful. You're thankful that she's beautiful. That sounds like a blessing. You're pleased that Haggai is, likes her. You're, you're proud of her as everyone uh, is impressed by her and she wins the favour of the court. You're, you're chuffed that Ahasuerus chooses her. She is the winner. She is the queen. But then you realise also what's happening in this story. I mean, just listening to the, the words of this passage again, there's something very confronting and grotesque about this passage. There's, there's harems. There's eunuchs, there's virgins being uh, placed in the, the hands of an egotistical king. There's something quite unsettling about this passage, and we're going to explore what it's all about. So how about we pray as we get into it? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, this story comes to us from thousands of years ago, and there's some elements here that are, are just quite confronting and unusual and just foreign to us. So we ask that you might uh, lead us and guide us into your truth and what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're in week two of our series in Esther. Last week we met Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, also known as King Xerxes, uh, and we saw that he was a headstrong guy, an impulsive buffoon, a man ruled by his passions and his ego. In chapter one, we saw him chuck this massive party, a six-month blowout of all of the biggest and best names and most important people in his kingdom, the, the governors and the officials, the generals, the nobles, all of these people. Ahasuerus, you see, was, was planning to go to war against the Greeks and he wanted all of these people together to make sure that they would be on board with what he was doing. Of course, he assumed that they would be because he always got what he wanted. He was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled an empire that spanned 127 provinces, all the way from Pakistan to Sudan. This was a man who ruled everything and he was always accustomed to everything he said people would obey. And so this party was going great. Everything was flowing. The food was rolling in. The wine was flowing. Everyone was having fun. But then right at the end, it turned disastrous. With his heart merry, Ahasuerus calls for his wife Vashti to come out and entertain everyone. Uh, the name Vashti means beloved or the desired one. And we're told that she was lovely to look at. 
And that's what the king wanted. He wanted everyone to look at his wife, to admire her, to leer at her. But Vashti isn't having it. In an act of remarkable courage, she refuses to come out and parade around for the king and his ogling officials. Now, Ahasuerus is stunned by this and enraged. He's accustomed, as I said, to getting everything that he wants as soon as he wants it. But now his own wife is refusing him. In verse 12, we're told that his anger burned within him and so he demands a solution from his advisors. They get to it straight away because they're scandalised by Vashti's behaviour too. They're worried that she is undermining the power of of all husbands, not just her own husband, but all husbands in the empire. They're worried that other uh, uh, husbands will feel like they're being undercut as well. And so they suggest that Ahasuerus makes a decree to banish uh, Vashti from the court and to depose her as queen. Ahasuerus is happy with this and this decree goes out across all the land that all women give honour to their husbands and that every husband be affirmed as master of his own household. Case closed. Ahasuerus felt humiliated, but now he's put Vashti in her place. But as we move into chapter 2, we, we get the sense that Ahasuerus is actually starting to have second thoughts. Chapter 2 begins with the words, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So sometime after this, whether that is, we don't exactly know, it could be a few days, it could be a few years, but however long, the anger of Ahasuerus has abated and he's now feeling a bit lonely. Poor Didims. Of course, he almost certainly wasn't alone. Uh, Persian kings were tended to have multiple wives and a whole plethora of concubines as well. But he no longer has Vashti, his beautiful queen, and so he begins to mope. As ever, he turns to his advisors for help, and they come up with a solution, the scheme, the Bachelor Persia edition. That's what he's going to do. They're going to find a new queen for King Ahasuerus. The king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And so women are brought from all over this vast empire and they're pimped and they're primped and they're preened and pimped and prepared for a special date with the emperor. They have this extensive beauty regime, cosmetics, a 12-month program of lotions and potions, and then finally they go into the king for their one-to-one date where the winner will be chosen. Now, for some of these women, it's likely that this was quite an exciting event. Imagine you've been plucked from nowhere, given, doted on for 12 months in the house of this amazing king, all with the exciting possibility that you might be chosen as queen. And yet there's something horrifically dark about this picture as well. I mean, this is a contest to give the king a new queen And the way that this will happen is by spending a night with him. Don't miss what's happening here, as David Firth writes, since the means by which a woman pleases the king involves spending the night with him, we can reasonably assume that good conversation was not on the agenda. They don't get a say in this. They don't get a choice. doesn't matter what they think of the king. And if for whatever reason they don't please the king, then they'll be abruptly sent away into obscurity. Or really just kept as a concubine for perhaps the rest of their lives. This is really a glimpse into life 
in the court of Ahasuerus. I said last week that in the early passages of Esther, we're being invited to see the vulnerability of God's people in the context of a kingdom ruled by this man. And this chapter really helps us see what it's like. He is truly the most powerful man in the world and everyone in his vast empire must serve his interests. Everyone is at his beck and call. His, uh, his wish is their command. And everything is done to please him. I mean, just look at this language. The women are sought out for the king. A whole administration and industry is created for it. Officials are appointed, hand, handpicked by the king. They harvest these people from all over the empire. There's this long process of beautification and the sheer scale of this as well. And, and even then, it turns out that this wouldn't be enough for him. We're told from history that he didn't just take these peasant virgins, he also took the wives of some of his own generals and officers. One writer says that this is a case of conspicuous consumption. In chapter 1, we see that he takes as much wine and food as he can. In chapter 2, he takes women. But to be honest, he was an equal opportunity fiend. He takes all of these women in this contest, but historians also tell us that every year he would also take about 500 boys or young men and make them eunuchs, forcibly castrating them. This is what life is like in the court of King Ahasuerus. As Karen Job says, everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. He always takes for himself from anyone and everyone. That's because people are like possessions to him. They're not people, they're just things. It doesn't matter what they want or need, it's all about him. This is what life is like in the court of King Ahasuerus. And it's in this context that we meet the two heroes of the story, Mordecai and Esther, the two characters who will become central to this whole narrative. First we meet Mordecai in verse 5. And we're told that uh, actually Mordecai is a Persian name, which is drawn from the Persian god Marduk. Uh, basically his name means something like worshipper of Marduk. And this is the first hint of what life is like for Mordecai. We know that he is a Jew, one of God's people. In fact, he even hails from the line of King Saul, we read in verse six, uh, verse 5. So he has this royal bloodline. He's, he's from God's people from years and generations. But now he lives in exile in a foreign country under a foreign king where he is given this name as people try to force him to worship someone else. This is a man who seems to have very little opportunity freedom. And yet he's still built himself a life here in Persia. He's risen to prominence. In verse 19, we find him sitting at the king's gate, which basically means that he was some sort of palace official. And he's devoted himself to looking after his cousin, Esther. She's an orphan. She must be a little bit uh, younger than him. When she was orphaned, he took her as his own daughter, verse 7. And so he's looking after her. This is a man who wants to uh, do the right thing and wants to be responsible. But what of Esther? What do we learn about her? Well, the first, one of the first things we see is that she's beautiful. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, that might seem like a, a blessing, but in this context, we realise that's probably not because her beauty means that she will attract the attention of Ahasuerus and his men. And so it proves when the king's order and the edict were proclaimed and many young women were gathered, Esther also was taken. 
And so we suddenly see this heroine that we're looking for. We, we, we're worrying for her, aren't we? Because we know that she is vulnerable, alone in this vast pagan palace. And yet it is here in the king's harem that we start to see her personality come through. The women were put in charge of a guy called Haggai and he immediately takes a shine to Esther and the young woman pleased him and won his favour, verse 9. And this quickly becomes a pattern, verse 15. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her and then ultimately it happens with the king. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favour in his sight so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. And so we have this, this new queen this moment for Esther, this great celebration. And yet we're not sure if we can be excited about this, are we? I mean, for a start, she's in this incredibly vulnerable position. She's now the wife of this fickle, domineering man who's already disposed of one queen and could easily dispose of another. Uh, I heard someone recently uh, liken, the, the, liken uh, the queens of uh, Artaxerxes to King Henry VIII's wives. I mean, they didn't have a great life expectancy. But even aside from that, there seems to be some other danger to her because she's Jewish. In verse ten, we're told that Esther had not made known to her, not had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Anti-Semitism and and the uh, hatred of God's people is a big theme in the book of Esther. And here we get this first hint of it. it. It's not safe for her to reveal her identity, her culture, her Jewishness. She has to hide it away. And so there is a hint here of the danger that she's in. But there's also something else here that, it, that has troubled commentators for a long time, for centuries. And that is, what do we make of the moral dynamics here? What do we make of her situation? See, she becomes queen by becoming the wife of a pagan. God's people were told very clearly that they must not marry Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. In fact, right around this time in the book of Ezra, chapter 10, uh, God's people are being criticised and judged because they're marrying Gentiles. And yet Esther here, she emerges as a heroine, but she marries a Gentile, someone who is not one of God's people. And the way that she gets his heart, wins his heart, is by spending the night with him. Now, of course, to even suggest that there is some moral question, a moral blame for her, just sounds preposterous, right? Probably. Like it sounds like blaming the victim. It's completely unreasonable to even ask such a question. I mean, surely she had no choice. That's the whole emphasis in the story. Verse 8, she was taken. She was put in the custody of Haggai. It's like she's been arrested. It sounds forcible. And so surely she had no choice. It was, surely it was the same with the king. She couldn't stand up to the king. And even if she had, then surely she would have been crushed. How can we say, how can we even ask whether she did the right thing here? It'd be too risky for her to do this. And yet there have been people throughout history, a lot of people, who've challenged her actions and her choices. You see, there are stories of God's people in similar situations where they had to make a choice between doing what they uh, what, what was right or wrong, and they had to risk their lives to do it. Think of Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego. Stories of God's people in exile who had to make a choice between doing what God's commands entailed or not, and they had to risk their lives. And, and interestingly, because they stepped out in faith, they were protected. So perhaps some people say 
Esther should have done that. Interestingly as well, there is the, this is the position of a lot of feminist inter, uh, theologians and commentators as well. Uh, often they get really frustrated with Esther because they see her as sort of too compliant. She's just kind of uh, just not standing up to the king. We saw in chapter 1 that Vashti did stand up to the king, so maybe that's what Esther should be like. Alice Lafley explains, feminist interpreters have begun to see that buried in Esther's character is also full compliance with patriarchy. In contrast to Vashti, who refused to be treated as an object and her husband's toy, Esther is the stereotypical man, a woman in a man's world. She wins favour by the physical beauty of her appearance and by her ability to satisfy. So there is this kind of criticism. It's a very provocative accusation. And yet perhaps there is some sort of sense where uh, we want to say that people have moral agency. And we're only treating people equally when we give all people moral agency. And yet it seems just incredibly harsh and unreasonable to me. I mean, this is placing a very modern framework on the situation. We have to remember that Esther was a really just a girl. She was probably underage. She had no power. She was living in a world where men had all the power, particularly this mighty king. She was vulnerable. She was alone in this palace with this mighty figure looming over her. I suspect she didn't even imagine, even think of standing up to the king. That just wasn't an option in her world. See, we see in this passage that she's very deferential. She listens to Mordecai's advice in verse 10. She listens to Haggai's advice in verse 15. So, of course, she would have listened to the king. So I think... It's uncomfortable to even suggest that there should be questions of her. But you know what? Even though we have these questions and people do ask them, I don't think Esther chapter 2 gives us the answers. You see, what's interesting is Esther chapter 2 describes what happens, describes Esther's actions. It reports them, but it doesn't comment on them. And so we don't know how to judge what happened. Gary Smith says, although it's enticing to imagine what Esther might have thought and consider the things she may have done, none of this is revealed in this narrative. So it's impossible to condemn or to praise her. And you know what? I don't think that's the point. You see, I reckon the reason we feel a bit uncomfortable around passages like this has got a lot to do with how we read the Bible. Our instinct when we read the Bible, you see, is to view each character as an example. We look to see how they live and we scrutinise them morally. We assess who is good and who is bad. Sometimes it's obvious that someone is bad, Cain or Pontius Pilate or Judas Iscariot. And so we try to avoid their character flaws. We don't want to be jealous like Cain. We don't want to be cowardly like Pontius. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be greedy like Judas Iscariot. And then when we see someone good in the Bible, we try to mimic their character traits. So we want to have the faith of Abraham or the courage of David or be wise like Solomon. And so we, so we see these characters in kind of black and white terms. They're good or they're bad. But the thing is, as soon as you look closer at these characters, you see all the complexity of them. Take Abraham. Yes, he is a man of great faith. But every time I reread Genesis, I'm amazed by the men of times he lacks faith. 
and the extraordinary things that he does because of that. Well, when you look at David and Solomon, you see how they sabotage their own lives through their sin. So actually, when you see someone in the Bible who's held up as a, a good character, so to speak, you've also got to grapple with the dodgy things they do as well. And then sometimes it's just really grey. It's not clear what someone should have done. Or the Bible doesn't tell us. And that's what happens here with Esther. As Karen Job says, the author is skillfully describing a morally ambiguous and complex situation because that's the way real life often is in this fallen world. I mean, you think about it, think about the, the many crazy situations and ambiguous situations that we're in. What would we do if we were placed in a situation where we might lose our life for our faith? And it's not just losing our life. What would we do when we face a situation where we might lose our job or uh, lose our reputation or be exposed to hurtful criticisms? What would we do in those situations? There's a lot of difficult morally ambiguous situations where we find ourselves. And so maybe when we face these situations, we don't know always what we're supposed to do, just as Esther might not have known what to do either. And so the whole point of this passage is not just that we can assess, did she do the right thing or the wrong thing? Actually, the real point of this passage is to see that God worked through her situation Anyway, that's what I want to see. I want you to see here the silent presence of God in this story. Famously, Esther is a book where God's name is never mentioned. At no point do we have some statement where it says God did this or God said this or Yahweh came and did this. And there's even not even any uh, references to worship, to ceremonies and things like this. Even at the the most difficult moment of Esther's life in chapter 4. She's fasting, but we don't know that she's praying. We probably imagine that she's praying, but that's not stated. And so for lots of readers, this book seems to not fit in the Bible. Some people actually thought that it shouldn't belong in the Bible because of that. Now, for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, no one was writing commentaries on this book. It was an awkward book that just didn't seem to fit because God wasn't obviously there. But I find that really strange because the, the more I read Esther, the more, the more clearly you do see God. This is not specifically mentioned, but the way the story unfolds shows very clearly that he is present silently, directing everything. As well as P. Ben says, the name of God might not be mentioned in the book of Esther, but the activity of God is written on every page. This is really what we call providence. It's a fancy theological term for how God is sovereign over all events and is writing the script of human history. Every little aspect of history, God is writing and he wills it into being. As Charles Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. God is in control of everything, right? He's scripting the whole story ultimately for his purposes, to glorify himself and to bless his people. Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? That's God in control. That's the sovereign God working through providence, writing the story. And that's what we see here with Esther. So I'm struck by the way we're told multiple times that she wins favour. 
It's almost like God is opening the doors for her, enabling her to to bring something out of people. It's the same language that we get with another hero in the Bible as well, a guy called Joseph. If you know your Bible history, you'll remember that Joseph was, was one of Jacob's 12 sons and he was sold off by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But here in Egypt, he won the favour of everyone he mixed with. Genesis 39 says, The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands, so he gets promoted and promoted and promoted until he's the prime minister. And then God works through that. So Joseph found favour in his sight. And then from that time, uh, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Joseph found favour in their sight. And so God raised him up and then God blessed people through Joseph and even saved his people. And we're going to see the same with Esther. This young woman, Esther, an orphan, a teenager. She's a nobody. She's a Jew who can't even reveal her identity because that might be too risky. And yet she, this, this woman, has risen to the position of queen. She is now in the palace of the most powerful man in the world. Yes, she's vulnerable and it's a dangerous place to be, but there is also opportunity and God has placed her in this place. And it is here that God will work in her and through her ultimately to save her people. This is the hand of God working through all of these things. And I think it's that frame that we need to use when we look at Esther chapter 2. Did Esther do the right thing? Could she have stood up to this? Should she have? Who knows? But what we can know is that God worked through her decisions either way. You see, if, if she had resisted the king, this would be a very short story and it wouldn't be named Esther. She would never have made the page of human history. She would never have been considered. She would never have emerged. So God's people wouldn't have had their rescuer. So God is at work even in the messy and the complex situations, even in the morally ambiguous situations. God is at work. David Strain writes, Esther too does not flinch from narrating for us this simple, ugly fact of life in ancient Persia where people are treated as commodities. There's no fairy tale story of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with Prince Charming. And yet it is here amidst all the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses that dog Esther's steps that we are being invited to trace the footprints of the sovereign God who is working in and through and despite the sin and the suffering that we find here. For, good of the, for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. God is at work. God is writing the story. And Esther is a part of it. And yet you might still have really big questions about this. You might think, okay, well, if God is writing the story, why does he have to write a story like this? Why does Esther have to be this character? Why does she have to suffer like this? Why is God placing this poor vulnerable girl in this horrible situation? Why does it have to be like this? Doesn't God care? He's got the power to write a different script. Why doesn't he do that? These are legitimate questions. And we don't have a direct answer. 
But I think we can trust God all the same because we know that as he wrote himself into the story, he wrote himself in as a character who would also suffer. As we come to a close, I want us to think about here the better hero and the greatest king. I said last week that throughout this series, I want to compare Ahasuerus and Jesus. They're both kings, the emperor of Persia and the lord of lords and king of kings. They're both kings and they both have power, but how they get that power and what they do with that power is completely different, completely opposite. And you see that here. Ahasuerus imagines he is truly sovereign, that he rules everything, that he can script his own life. Whenever something happens that he doesn't like, he writes out a decree. He writes what he wants life to be like. He sends out his servants and they do their thing to serve him, to please the king. He imagines that he can control his life and everything that he writes is to serve him, to make sure that he is happy. Now compare that to Jesus. He actually is sovereign. He actually is truly in control of history. He is writing the story. But look at the story. Think about the story that Jesus writes. When he writes himself into the story, when he comes to earth, he doesn't demand to be served. He doesn't grab and take anyone and everything, even though he deserves it all. He writes himself in as a servant. He writes himself in as someone who will care for others, who will give himself to others. Because that was his whole mission. Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he gave up all of his comfort, all of his glory, so that he could serve us, so that he could take our sin, so he could do all, all the things that we do wrong, deserve a response from God, demand a response. Justice demands that. God must do something about it. He must judge sin, but he judges Jesus instead of us. And Jesus writes himself into the story. God writes him into the story so that he can deal with that. And Jesus really is the ultimate hero. Like Esther, he lives in two worlds. He is God and he is man. He's from heaven, but he makes his home on earth. Do you know, it's interesting. Esther is the only character in this story who has two names. She has a Persian name, Esther, which is named after Ishtar, the goddess, a Persian goddess. And he has, she has this Jewish name, Hadassah. And it kind of shows how she lives in two worlds, doesn't it? She's one of God's people, but she's living in exile. She's, she's trying to work out how to do that. She's living in this complex a confusing world, moral ambiguity all over the place. Jesus dwelt in two worlds too. He was the man from heaven, the God who was also human. And at every point, he did the right thing. He was tempted with power. The devil tried to tempt him with power, but he refused it. Instead, he chose to serve and to serve us because he loves us and he loves us as we are. Because here's the other big difference between Jesus and Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus demanded that all of these women would be brought to him and would be made beautiful for him. But Jesus takes us as we are. 
Ahasuerus primps and preens his pride of virgins until they're just perfect and they please him. But Jesus is the reverse. Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God takes us in on a mess. God doesn't take us because we're beautiful, we're good to look at physically or spiritually. He doesn't do that. He takes us in our ugliness and then he makes us beautiful. And then he continues to do that. That's his commitment to us, Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's his commitment to us. He doesn't uh, demand that we are beautiful. He makes us beautiful. And interestingly, he uses the story of our life. We're going to see with Esther that he's going to use the story of her life in profound and beautiful ways. We see when we first meet her, we're told that she was lovely to look at on the outside. By the end of this book, she will be lovely to see on the inside. She's a beautiful woman who follows God with courage and faith. God works through her story. God writes the story for her and does something profound. And he can do the same in us too. He is writing the story of our life. And the messy bits, the morally ambiguous bits, the bits that you're not sure you did the right thing, bits where you did the wrong thing. God is working even in those things to write his story and to make us beautiful because he loves us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the sovereign God who rules over all things. We trust that you are writing the story. Sometimes it's hard to understand why the story has to be the way it is but we trust your wisdom and your goodness. We thank you that you are working all things together for good for your people, that you are the God who raised up Esther and did something redemptive in a horrible situation. Lord, uh, write our stories. Take the strands of our stories that feel messy and incomplete or we wish weren't there. Take those things and make them beautiful. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us when we are sinners. You love us when we're ugly. You don't uh, demand that we're primped and preened for you. You take us as we are. And we thank you that you will present us without flaw, without spot or blemish because of what Jesus has done. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.